listening to Fresh Air Community Radio, KFAI, 90.3 FM Minneapolis and 106.7 FM St. Paul, Radio Without Boundaries. Welcome to Messages from the Drum. I recently had the distinct pleasure of sitting down and talking with John Poupart, Native American researcher, about the role of indigenous wisdom and storytelling in the field of research. I hope you enjoy our conversation. John, tell us about yourself. Sure. I'm uh... Chippewa and Anishinaabe from uh, Lake Flambeau, Wisconsin, but I've lived here in the Twin City area for 50, 60 years. And uh, I've uh, got an interesting past that maybe we won't have time to go into today, <laughs> but we'll, we'll talk about the contemporaries. Uh, my education is University of Minnesota, criminal justice undergraduate. Um, um, uh, Master's in Public Administration from Harvard University. Um, worked for the Department of Corrections for 25 years. Uh, following that, I developed an American Indian Policy Center to research and study the American Indian from the American Indian oral history uh, perspective. And uh, I've uh, worked uh, years ago on many of the Indian organizations in the Twin Cities, at nonprofits, and so forth. Um, so I've always been active in one way or the other in the community. Politically, I've been um, involved in party politics over the years, and uh, but not in the past couple of decades. Uh, I guess I could say I've learned better than to immerse myself in that particular sector because of its. Uh, uh, isolation from the reality of the issues that um, that affect me and the Indian community the most. So I'm, uh, so I'm kind of a generalist in that way. What uh, I became concerned about um, we as Indian people, first of all, in the urban setting and in the uh, concentric circles of rural communities, and uh, obviously. Indian reservations or nations, um, we have uh, really not been in, included in uh, honest and sincere development of public policy, which is based upon uh, what folks call evidence-based uh, practices or information, and our Indian information is missing from that. So that that was behind uh, developing developing the American Indian Policy Center, which uh, I ran for 20 years and retired a couple of years ago. And I'm still doing uh, consulting and doing uh, projects for state and local government and and the private sector as well. So mm-hmm. Keeps me busy and probably working probably working harder now volunteering and consulting than <laughs> when I had a full-time job. That's kind of my background. I'm uh, also, I'm uh, the next birthday, I'll be 80 years old. So I've been uh, I've been around for a while. I was born and raised on the reservation, immersed in a culture and a very remote part of uh, 
and I like the Flambeau Reservation in the northeast corner. Probably my outside of my aunt and uncle who lived about a quarter mile away, but the nearest uh, other Indian people were about five miles away. So okay. I was pretty isolated, and yeah. therefore I had an opportunity to to uh, be immersed in the culture and the traditional ways and so forth. Yeah. So I'm pretty much up to speed in, in mainstream in terms of political, legal, mm-hmm. social, economic kind of issues, but also in our own our own oral history and traditional ways. So it's like an education in both worlds. Oh, correct. Yeah. But learning, I want to talk about this later on, yeah. but learning and teaching are two distinct ways in both those communities, mainstream and American Indian. Yeah. Ways. Yeah. I can really relate to the education part of it. Yeah. So getting that education, which holds a lot of credibility and a lot of value in the mainstream society and yet it doesn't hold the same credibility in our native world and our native society and I um, I remember um, when I was in school I would think oh good I learned it and then I think oh no I learned it you know like did I have to trade something off and so maybe we could talk a little bit about yeah, and that's something I get into, and I'll talk about it later. Is yeah. that we as Indian people accommodated the European, and, and adaptation was uh, necessary, required. Uh, but the inverse, the reverse of uh, Europeans learning about us, mm-hmm. didn't deserve the same respect. Mm-hmm. And what's considered authority and credible data and information? It's really interesting. I love the research that you do. I. I yeah. I think that um, your story, your contribution, and this show, what it's intending to, to attempting to do, um, mm-hmm. we're calling it reclaiming the narrative, but truthfully, it's creating a place in the world for, for our wisdom. Yeah. I kind of have a logic in my mind that I, I don't deal so much in the European context of uh, logic and uh, pursuit of knowledge in that way, although I know it, you know, I dropped out of seventh grade and, and, and went back and finished my education, finally out of Harvard University, when you look at those bookends, uh, in between mm. that, uh, in between those bookends, it's, uh, it's a lot of uh, experience, um, new Learning, yeah, but also new learning about old ways, mm. and, and that's sort of a, a reflection on what I'd like to talk about today. Yeah, good, good. Thank you. This sounds just, just perfect. I really appreciate you um, talking with us and sharing your knowledge. I think it's really important to hear and not lose um, some of the work that you've done in particular. I think I have a lot to learn from you. And hopefully we can just hang out to yeah. it. So at some point, Thanks. I like seeing you at a recent um, cookout. I hope there's more times like that as well. Yeah. Um, what, in what way could storytelling enhance and inform systems? Because we're talking about systems here. Yeah, the, um, when, you had, when you first approached me about telling a story or storytelling, uh, I quickly reflected on our our oral history as 
as um, uh, the original people of this uh, Western Hemisphere, in particular the North American continent, and we we survived by the telling of stories, not just because they're interesting or amusing, but there was a, a coding within the stories that um, um, I know we could talk about some of the stories that were handed down, like uh, why does uh, the bear have a short tail? Uh, yeah. Well, there's a story that goes into that uh, that is ages old and has been handed down through generations. Um, you could talk about why the loon has a ring around its neck and white spots on its feathers. But uh, I know this is not the venue for trying to get people to understand those things. Yeah. But within our Indian ways, those are the way we handed down matters and the telling of those stories carried with it uh, a moral of the story, in other words. But the teller of the story did not interpret the meaning of the story. The listener interpreted or acquired some knowledge because of hearing the stories. So the, the uh, storytelling, since we never wrote things down as a, we didn't have a written language, mm -hmm. we only had what we call now the oral history. Yeah. That, that from grandparent to parent to child to, to infant and that's the way we kept these stories alive and kept the values of the native people intact. So, and there was a there was a requirement, you might say, of um, the older you grew, the more responsibility you sensed for keeping alive those stories that guided the people which strengthened them in a spiritual way, in a, in a physical, uh, psychological way, and in a social way. So they were useful tools, but they're not seen that way mm -hmm. as uh, writers of history in general have displayed over the years. And uh, yeah, but, but you know, those. That's just kind of get beyond what storytelling is because uh, many people, many other people say, well, you can't tell these stories until there's snow on the ground. Well, we don't have snow on the ground today. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> tomorrow we do it. But at any rate, you know, that's one of the one of the sort of rules if you want to. But some people, I know some old guys would say, well, there's snow on the ground somewhere in the world. <laughs> North, <laughs> Northern Minnesota right now. <laughs> yeah. Talk about storytelling. That's handed down from mm. generation to generation. So we now see the warming of the planet. In the uh, next 10 years, we, we're, uh, we're at the point of no return. That the uh, 1.5 or the 2.0 temperature increase degrees is, yeah is, is a critical critical uh, thing we face but yet our government today government leadership in, in Washington um, is wanting to ignore those signs 
and to continue opening up, you know, the, the mining and the, and the, some of the sacred sites of Indian people. It, yeah, it's a it is a concern, and and I think that native philosophy and stories can provide substance for the argument that if you don't change, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my my involvement in, in research was to uh, go back and not necessarily reclaim, because this is the point that I want to make, is that when we, when we establish our position as Indian people, so many times we weaken ourselves by, by framing the argument mostly in the mainstream European wheelhouse. Mm. In other words, in other words, we don't we don't substantiate our own argument based on its merits, but rather when we say we claim reclaim our own history. Well, I don't think we need to reclaim it because we've always had it. So what we need to do is claim it mm. in a more assertive sense. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the academy, there's there's a lot of um, discourse, public discourse regarding um, um, what they call decolonization. Well, the fact that you need to use the word colonization weakens your own argument because you you've conceded. A, a point in a debate without even having to defend it, but you've conceded it. So my ability to think in both of these spheres or parallels is, um, I think, something that needs to be added to our current um, conversation or mm-hmm. narrative or whatever they call it. Nowadays, it'll be something else two years from now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I imagine I respect that you've seen changes come and go and all the words and terminology. Yeah. One of the humorous ones I made fun of the other day is that, remember that old saying, you need to change the paradigm? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Still trying to do that. So you've said that some of the disparities and some of the challenges could perhaps be overcome with greater attention to this indigenous wisdom. What do you mean by that? How could that, how can that happen? Say that again, I'm sorry. So um, you were saying that some of the disparities and challenges that we are facing could perhaps be overcome by applying indigenous wisdom and and uh, paying attention yeah. to, to what what do you mean by that? Um, pretty much with my last statement, it's framed in that way: is that we as Indian people or Native people or Aboriginal folks um, should go back to our own founding, our own establishment. Go back to our creation story, and that varies from yep. nation to nation, or tribe to tribe. But um, it really means the same same thing in essence. Is that 
we either come from beneath the earth or we come from the spirit world or from the outer, uh, outer universe or from the heavens. Um, but nonetheless, we, we were not really into the argument of Scopes trial and those kinds of things. We have a beginning in, in our Anishinaabe ways. It's, we call it the creation story about how about how the uh, Great Spirit put man into man here on, on this planet, in this uh, North American continent. And from that, later was joined by a woman, and later, you know, that's sort of the creation story. So when the old guy asked me one time, he said, you know who you are? And, and it was a profound, and I took it as a profound question that really didn't talk about whether I come from a reservation or from a city or what my location was, but it was more of a philosophical uh, question. And, and I tried to figure it out in my mind and finally I just had to say, no, I really don't know what you're talking about. Would, would you share with me what, what, what the response should be? And he says, well, in order to know who you are, and where you're going. He said, you have to know where you come from. Mm. In, in, the, in the context of that uh, triangulation came to me the uh, information that if I understood where I came from in terms of the creation story and all those stories that followed throughout the years, not that I know all of them, no, I don't, uh, but I know enough to have a deep, abiding respect for them. So I understood the, the, the um, ethos of, of the uh, situation that we were talking about something nebulous, something abstract, but yet with solid, deep meaning. So that's, that's mm. kind of where I go back to in, in knowing about us as people. And that contributes to the required knowledge for for researching and studying and learning about the American Indian ways and how important they are to to building character, to strengthening a, an individual, to um, help them determine their own destiny in this world, mm. and that's a strengthening kind of a, of a um, exercise, you might say, but uh, you see, most of social workers are taught from the Western European thinking, and when you look at the, when you look at the um, background of social work in the same way you look at the background of American Indian people, you can see a vast difference in one of the, one of the things that sticks with me about social work is um, the, the mantra, do no harm. But yet I look upon the land today and I'm seeing all kinds of harm being done. It may not be purposeful, it may not be on purpose, but it is nonetheless harmful. Because then I shift over to my understanding of mainstream society and its history, and I realized that 
most of this was found in Western European thought. And folks say, you can't depend on your oral history. But Western European thought is based on the, the, uh, the Plato, Aristotle, mm -hmm. and, uh, Socrates, which are oral history. Yeah. They were storytellers. And that's where the birth or, or the cradle of education came about in Western European ways. That joined in with uh, Judeo-Christian thought and practice really makes for what we see as uh, manifest destiny being applied upon American Indians, which is kind of like our way or the highway. And, and that so too goes into um, how we run the academy, mm -hmm. which prepares professionals and educators and doctors to try and make us as Indian people better or to heal us. Well, that's part of that is, is good because it comes out of the sciences. It comes out of um, the quantitative. But then when you get into the qualitative, there's no defining bridge between the two. We haven't done that yet. And that's kind of what my purpose is, is to establish a, um, a, um, a bridge work between these two. It's almost like a bridge work between the quantitative and the qualitative. Mm -hmm. um, because we're using the basis of quantitative to employ upon these disparities in a qualitative. Mm -hmm. And those borrowed terms are, um, for example, evidence-based practice uh, doesn't stem from the history of, of the uh, qualitative in and of itself. It comes out of the quantitative, which is one of the hard sciences. Mm -hmm. And the hard sciences are easier to quantify and count and measure, etc. So when when you have that logic and you try to lay it into the human service areas of uh, child welfare, health, and criminal justice, education, and you're working with the people who understand um, or lean toward the oral history as they have learned from their elders, parents, and so forth. Here's the young person being required to try and manage their way through this dichotomy of two different worlds. Mm -hmm. And and we as Indian people are learning more and more about our own world, but the professionals and administrators and politicians and policymakers aren't learning with us. So until that happens, we're going to see the continued either escalation or, or, the, or the leveling of our racial disparities as it pertains to American Indians. And, and you know, I just for a moment here, let me say, our, our nonprofit organizations have taken on this mentality of we have to have a program to address some of these ills in our community. And our programs are developed by non-Indians who do research and study beyond the borders of American Indian communities, the borders of, of uh, ours, which are spirituality, culture, 
those kind of norms in our society, and they do that research and study from an outsider's point of view. And thus, when they deliver the program design, the RFPs and the evaluations, they look nothing like the Indian community. So we continue to go on year after year. So we're required as professionals or leadership in the nonprofit sector, the human services area, we need to perform year after year, and most of those grants are three years and then they end, which doesn't give a long time to demonstrate anything, but to try and fulfill the expectations of the funding stream. Yes. So that's where we get caught up in this stuff, and, and, and it's not getting any better. So they hold us as nonprofit leaders to accountability standards, which are developed outside of our knowledge. But here's, here's the trick, you know, that they don't apply the same kind of accountability standards to themselves. Mm. When are they going to get better? When are they going to sanction themselves for underperforming or non-performance in terms of reducing these racial disparities? That's the indictment that I lay on, you know, those who are providing funds. Yeah, one thing they're doing is most, you know, at least in the philanthropic world, really don't understand the problem very well. The most probably legitimizing factor in their decision making is that they make those grants because they have a tax write-off to do so. And it doesn't cross over into knowing our world. So to me, you're saying two things. You're saying that funders are looking at, are measuring their performance and measuring their success and effectiveness in a community based on um, a dollar kind of tax ratio, based on um, what's laid out for them to give every year without looking at the effectiveness and impact on community. And the other thing you're saying is Native organizations, because they receive funds from those fun funders or, um, or other foundations or whoever, are have to mimic that so that they can receive and survive financially and be sustainable while at the same time the design and delivery of their services is again not effective for those in the community. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they need some kind of accountability uh, mechanism, I mean they being the funders or the grant makers and government as well as the private sector. Have you ever seen this work? Have you ever seen a different way? And, and, and how does that work? And how can we elevate that? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, well, we are involved in it. And there are some very good people in, in uh, state and local government and in the philanthropic community. They are, they are asking what I would deem the right questions and they're trying to uh, reach out, quote unquote, to, to American Indians to involve them some, somewhat in this grant making process. We have, I've seen over the years American Indians hired by these grant makers, but it hasn't achieved what I would have hoped for, that uh, by adding an Indian, what does that change? And the same goes for state government. We have countless 
advisory committees, and as you know, as well as I, that advisory advice is taken very lightly in, in, in a system where all the rules and the procedures are outlined um, by a, a cubbyhole over here that has nothing to do with the reality of American Indians. So, uh, yeah, th th there's, a, there's a, a real quandary that no matter the, no matter the response from the funders, it hasn't achieved the desired outcome. Mm -hmm. it, it, and, and, I, and I made numerous recommendations over the years, uh, both to local as well as state government, on how to do things differently. They, uh, I say you have to have Indians with cultural knowledge come into your midst and start sharing with, with the uh, professionals how to work with American Indians. And that, to me, is, is not happening. It's happening, but it's, it's happening within the framework of state and local policy. And the rules are already set, the job descriptions are already laid out, and the evaluations that go on we never see out here. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it's pretty much a world in, mm -hmm. unto itself. One of the, I just wanted to talk a minute about what, what is the methodology of, of the American Indian policy center. I stole a phrase from somebody because I read it somewhere, it's called reality-based research. Mm -hmm. It was the closest thing that I could imagine that uh, was uh, applicable with teeth for American Indians because it allowed for us to tell our own story to define the substance of our story and to report out what, what we find, whether it's in uh, talking circles, whether it's within the ceremonials, or whether it's in just the one-to-one -one conversations. Or, but what the technique was is that I understood what research is in the mainstream and what its components are, its methodologies, in other words. You know, we've got, we've got focus groups, we got talking circles, you got um, interf uh, what do they call these informed interviewees, uh, uh, we have one-on-one -on -one conversations, uh, uh, we have surveys, yes, and we have surveys as well. Uh, but the trick about all this is, is that in finding what you're looking for, or sometimes even not what you're looking for, but in, find, in our findings, we sort of loop that back to those who were either in, interviewed or within the talking circles. After we summarize them in, in our write-up of, of the pursuit of knowledge, is this what you said? This is what mm. we think you said? Is this what you said? Sort of a clearinghouse and a looping of the information all the way to the final report. And they're involved way back even in defining the question that we want to ask in the interview or in the talking circles. So it's a thorough Indian involvement, and this is uh, in line with our ways of knowing in terms of Indian people, ways of knowing. And that's based on the oral history and the uh, 
conversational attitude of our people over time. And it also identifies the more qualitative kind of research vis-a-vis -vis the quantitative research, which is fueling most of policy today. So what we did was we, and we put these side by side, and, and we tried during the American Indian policy days is to, to create a, a synthesis between this, what I would call a thesis and antithesis, and to get a synergetic point where we could exchange information on an honorable basis and to co-develop some of the programming, some of the mm -hmm. RFP language, some of the hiring practices, some of the things that you're talking about in terms of equity. And we're still in pursuit of, at least I am, still in pursuit of that. Um, but it's disappointing. It is disappointing that when I carry on conversations with those who are in power, those in the know, when we talk about this, gradually the conversation shifts over to mainstream side of matters. And it doesn't, and, and the conversation doesn't reflect any questions about the oral history or ways of knowing of Indian people. So I, I'm still trying to figure out a way to ignite a flame within mainstream to want to accommodate the Indian way of life, because it's not going away, obviously, it's still mm -hmm. here. Yes, we are yeah. still here. It, it, and and I, I mean, I have to believe that after all the genocide and assault on Native people, we have to be incredibly resilient and strong to even be here. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways behind us, you know, that, that provide for that outcome, if you will. Um, and, I, and, I talk, and I talk about several elements that are contained in our people that, um, that aren't present in the literature, in the academy, in the practices of mainstream America. And those things that we divide, <laughs> those things that we def depend on, um, almost like there was, it's a silent, hidden element of our being as Indian people. And that, and that has to do with uh, some of our culture, cultural attributes, um, spirituality. Most people want to frame that in a, a religiosity mm -hmm. yep. discussion. Right? And it's different. Mm -hmm. So, but it, but it, it's the very essence of our being as Native people, the spirituality of, as I talked about the creation story, very much involves the, the spirit world mm -hmm. and our relationship with it. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to sell this to anybody. I'm just telling what it is through my eyes, through my perception. In our oral history, like I talked about earlier, is, is so much important to keeping alive that um, spirituality in our culture. And the, uh, some, some folks um, think, that, think that science and astrology is, is something that belongs in the world of science, but we had it over the, over the yep. eons of our time here. And uh, 
about the star people, you know, what the constellations, um, for example, the pyramids. And most people look at the pyramids of Giza, and, and they discovered that the three pyramids of Giza are exact replica of the of the belt in the, in the constellation Orion. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? We have the same thing in our ways. That, uh, in Mexico and the Yucatan, there's a, a, a similar finding in the pyramids there in, this, in, the, in the design of the belt of uh, Orion. And, and in the Hopi Navajo, the, the, there's a place called the Three Mesas, First Mesa, Second Mesa, Third Mesa, those two are in the design of the of the belt of Orion. Moreover, there are several seven sacred sites in that area that frame the whole and the replica of Orion in the constellation. So we we know of these things, and and these these things are handed down, but they're also now being validated by science and and. And to me, that's a, that's a proving point. And, mm. You know, our ceremonials. We have ceremonials today. Some of them I've never heard of, but nonetheless, I won't question anybody's right or ability to to do those kinds of things. Not, and this is not to say that I know everything. It's just what I've seen. That's all. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, we sometimes make up things, um, improvise, if you will on our limited knowledge and, and, and limited resources in terms of conducting ceremonials in our ways. When I grew up as a kid, my aunt told me when I was about five years old, and I remember this as though it were yesterday, when she was taking me down this old dusty road and old wagon, wagon way, and she said, I'm going to take you someplace, and you're going to see something, but you never can tell the white man about it. Uh, um, when an older person talked to you that directly, that was out of the norm. But there were two, but she made a point, and it stays with me to this day, that the ceremonial that I went to, yeah. I could never talk about to anybody. Mm-hmm. But it was there, and it was fulfilling and meaningful to mm-hmm. me even mm-hmm. at that young age. Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in our in our ceremonials, there are certain sacred songs that we sing over and over and over and over. And they're handed down from one person to another person to another person. Yep. Um, these are parts and elements of our culture that, you know, the, the, the way that the dictionary defines culture is a way that's handed down from one people to the next people to the next people. And that's just a rough uh, Webster's definition of it. But our, our culture is is more, it's more beautiful and fulfilling and wholesome than, than those dry words would leave us with. Yeah. And our language, our creation stories handed down in our native language. And the native language carries with it the essence of spirituality, the world, our being, our people, all of those things. And, and uh, we're bringing it back. It almost died out. Uh, the Dakota, the Dakota, the Anishinaabe, Ojibwe, they almost vanished. And I'm happy to say that I was I was involved in the first 
um, funding uh, for native languages at the state legislature about 15 years ago. Oh, and, wow. And we were able to get legacy funding for the yep. for, uh, heritage and resources in Minnesota, and so it's been ongoing since then. Yeah, I'm I very saw, happy about that. That's uh, awesome. I saw a recent um, announcement of the winners for this yeah. past year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The ethos of American Indian learning is different than, than uh, America's mainstream education systems, which is which is in large part responsible for only half of our children in Minnesota graduating to 12th grade. 50% of our people are making a roughly old yep. year of their own. And we haven't changed that. Mm -hmm. And I ran for the Minneapolis School Board 40-some years ago with that understanding that we didn't have a reflection of ourselves either in the leadership or in the faculty or in the programming in, in, in Minneapolis public schools. And my children were being uh, abused. Um, psychologically and physically in some cases. Um, so that, you know, and I tried talking numerous times to the principal, to the social working school, and that, you know, so I decided to run for the Minneapolis School Board. I got a heck of an education there. But, you know, it, it served me well personally in that regard, but it didn't serve the Indian people all that well. When you, when you talk about how we have to have some kind of a uh, resource for our children to learn these things. That brings into view, again, the dichotomy. Uh, on one side is mainstream, on the other side is Indian. In our DNA, in our blood memory, in our existence as, as Indian people, there's this way of learning that's never been accommodated fully. They were accommodated fully in America's educational systems, in that the Indian mind works in a different way than mainstream America's teaching and its uh, children and parents and communities. There, again, there's this dichotomy that the Indian child, my wife works in a, a Montessori American Indian uh, setting, and she just marvels and bring me, brings me home stories about how. Um, Indian, young Indian children are so smart and brilliant and with the teaching, not necessarily teaching, but the learning methods where they're involved in doing what is, um, what is meaningful to them. So they take it more personally and own it and uh, the same thing about us creating and defining our own destiny, mm -hmm. this young mind is accepting what they're willing to learn. And that just simply goes back again to our oral history, mm -hmm. that we didn't have the written language, we didn't have a recorder or a teleprompter or whatever <laughs> to, to tell us what to do. We learned, and I brought along just, just one quote from Vine Deloria. Yes, please. Vine Deloria was, he said, while Western science and education tend to emphasize compartmentalized knowledge, which is often decontextualized and taught in the detached setting of a classroom or laboratory. 
Native people have traditionally acquired their knowledge through direct experience in the natural environment. For them, the particulars come to be understood in relation to the whole, and the quote-unquote laws are continually tested in the context of everyday survival. Western thought also differs from native thought in its notion of competency. In Western terms, competency is based on predetermined ideas of what a person should know, which is then measured indirectly through various forms of quote-unquote objective tests. Such an approach does not address whether that person is really capable of putting the knowledge into practice. In a traditional native sense, competency has an unequivocal relationship to survival or distinction. You either have it or you don't, and survival is the ultimate measure. And that's the way we've always lived, and that's the way we've learned. So it sort sort of reinforces what I'm talking about is that is that in people or children have to be part of what's being taught in order to be a learner. Hmm. And we approach learning by doing things that our children learn through. So we have to change our practices to do things that are more conducive to the Indian mind than what we're doing in our mainstream educational systems, which are a 50% rating. I, I don't know how that's going to happen. I think there are many pursuits throughout. You've got tribal schools, you've got tribal colleges, you've got urban Indian organizations that are, that are formed to respond to this challenge. But somehow they can't get out of the sort of the routine that's being run again and again. You know, the Minneapolis Public Schools, for example, funds some of the the Indian initiatives. But as long as you got the purse strings, you also have control. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one of the obstacles that Indians have a tough time fighting. Even though we've had Indians on the school board over time, we haven't changed that. So the battle is still before us yet, and, as, and, and I see our recovery coming when we can articulate our culture, our knowledge, into an attribute for the process, but we have to change the process, and so far I don't see that happening right now. Uh, I think there are many people at work, but we almost get choked up or corralled by uh, by the laws, the policies, and the funding, and and those are things we don't control because of low numbers. Mm-hmm. We aren't a political force. Mm-hmm. Until that happens, we're going to face these challenges. It sounds like you're talking about a system-based change. You know, to 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 develop true independence to integrate some of the cultural values into a process or systems or open areas that could? Well, you know, to teaching or particularly education, if you go back to Brown v. Board of Education in Kansas in 1954, they went to court 
uh, and, and they argued that separate but equal was the, the mm. law of the land. Well, to change that, they had to go to court and, and argue it. And, uh, and the finding of the court, you know, shifted education, particularly with African-American folks over time. We haven't had that day, and I don't know that we should have that day, but I see, and I've said many times that we have to go to court. I, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek just to, to radicalize the, the conversation so that people take a step back and say, oh, maybe there is another avenue or another pathway mm. to follow. But when we go back in our history, in our legal history, and we go to what is called the sovereignty of Indian nations, I know that doesn't matter in the Twin City area, but I know it does matter mm -hmm. uh, on the reservations uh, because the land base, because mm -hmm. it's treaties, and uh, they're tied to, uh, to the negotiations that went into those treaties, but they're also the trust responsibility mm -hmm. of those treaties, of the education, yeah. The economic development and the health factors mm -hmm. that are tied to those treaties through the trust responsibility, we have a better chance of upgrading and working toward the end that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But still, I still see us Indian people as being too accommodating. Mm -hmm. Being, and I say that with a great deal of respect to those who are going to accommodate because it comes out of the culture to be that way, mm -hmm. to be kind, to see the other's point of view, to respect the other side, and, and we've done too much of that, and I think we need to ratchet that up a little bit and become a little more outrageous, radical, push the envelope, something like that. And I say that with, with all due respect to the parties involved here, because I think until we get there, we're going to be Minnesota nice and maybe it's Oregon nice or whatever <laughs> throughout the country. But until we get a little more uh, assertive as uh, Indian people, I think our attributes will be left sitting in the chairs of the empty uh, yeah. Meeting room yeah. at the end. It's a lot like what you said earlier. It's not reclaiming it, it's claiming it. Correct. Correct. See, and I, and I think if there's ever a school, I think that would be um, I think that would be a um, ideal sort of a, an institute to to claiming our whatever, you know, mm -hmm. our identity, our reality, our future, mm -hmm. or destiny, whatever it is. But we need, we need to do it on our, our, our own terms, <clears throat> because that's how we've survived this far. Yeah. Because we are here because we've dealt with things on our own terms. Even though it's been in private, maybe mm -hmm. exclusively outside of mainstream America, but we're still here. John, thank you so much. For, for talking today. What else would you like to add? Is there stuff you... Well, i got Please. 11 more pages of talking <laughs> Please. No. What, what's important? What have we missed? Well, I, 
I just think we, we as people have survived because of us, of ourselves. We were given nothing to survive. Nobody provided us uh, the will or the goods to survive, but yet we are still here today. And um, I, I think that, that those, what I call attributes of, of Indian people are useful throughout the world. There's, um, there's a great deal of um, learning um, about many things, and mineral uh, uh, demodesy is something that we ought to name our way. Um, what, uh, what's this new law going to be called? Mineral demodesy, the, the good way, the good life, yeah. pursuing the good life. And that's the native word for that in, in Mishnabi. Um, so, you know, the renaming of Lake Calhoun, for example, is, is one small but giant step for those kinds of things to happen. In Bemidji, there's all kinds of uh, uh, public signs that are being put forth in, in the two languages, English and Anishinaabe, mm-hmm. and, and it's hap- happening in many other places as well, mm-hmm. yep. and, and rightfully so. Not not so that non-Indians learn the language, but non-Indians must learn that we have a language, mm-hmm. and that that language is so critically important to us as a people, and that's held us together over all these years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just. I don't know, some of these things don't cost any money. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, uh, perhaps some political currency is there to make it happen, I'm not sure. So if I were someone who is not Native, who's listening, and who wonders, where can I find information about this? Where, where can I study this? What would you suggest? Oh, there's, there are plenty of sources on the Internet. You, know, you can find all kinds of stuff, but at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking there are some pretty, pretty crazy things. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm saying, how in the world did this get? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, there's not a there's not a uh, strip mall where you can go and get a <laughs> book on, uh, on ceremonials or language or you know, that kind of thing. It, it, it requires a more than quote unquote reaching out. It, it, it means setting down your European mainstream stuff at the door when you go into any, any country, that's, whether it's in an urban setting or a reservation, um, to listen. And, and, and as we ask our young children, any children, to listen. You're not here to talk, listen. Mm. And, and that's the way the little ones learn. Yeah. And that's the way they grow up with, within that educational ethos of listening, watching, and doing. And that's the way to survive. And that's what's held us together all these years and years and years as Indian people, is that we have this innate uh, instinct that uh, we have to listen to what the older people or whatever other people are, are saying and mm-hmm. telling us 
and what they're doing so that on my own level of understanding, I can do those things and perhaps I learn for myself and how to survive. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I know you have 11 pages, and so I'm hoping you'll come back. I'm hoping you'll come back and talk. If, if oh, yeah, I can talk all day about this. <laughs> I'm just so happy to, to be here and to uh, contribute to KFAI. I know it's a, it's a uh, critically important vein of information in our community and for outsiders to, yes. to hear about us. So, uh, I, I've been on KFI since it used to be over here in the church yes. on the street of us, and yeah, I've always been willing to contribute one way or the other to try and help out and I appreciate what it does. Thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate your time today. Yeah. Our thanks to John Poupart. I really appreciate his analytical mind and his indigenous perspective. I hope you do as well. And I hope he'll be back with more in the future. Coming up next month, please join us on our next episode of Messages from the Drum for an exciting topic about the Indian Mounds and their Twin Cities connection. It's a really fascinating conversation you won't want to miss, featuring two Native American scientists, educators, and researchers who've dedicated much of their life to this research. It started right here in St. Paul, Minnesota, but led to places you'd never guess. At least, I was surprised and amazed. It's nothing short of genius. I hope you'll join us for the December episode of Messages from the Drum. You've been listening to Fresh Air Community Radio, KFAI, 90.3 FM Minneapolis and 106.7 FM St. Paul, Radio Without Boundaries, streaming on the web at kfai.org. Support for this program comes from KFAI listener members and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. If there is a topic you'd like to hear more about, please let us know. The program email address is messagesfromthedrum at gmail.com. The station telephone number is 612-341-3144. Or you're also welcome to like our Facebook page and comment or suggest from there. Or does anyone still own stamps and send postcards? We receive mail at KFAI Community Radio at 1808 Riverside Avenue, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55454. Please remember, we actually are community-based radio responsive to you and your interests, and sharing unique programming not heard anywhere else. Well, that's it for me, and that's it for Messages from the Drum. I am Beverly Bushyhead, Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and your host. It's been an honor to spend this hour with you. It's an honor to research and find topics you will be interested in, and I hope you encourage you to share information about what you'd like to hear more of. Thanks so much for joining us today, and hey, meet you at the drum.